Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today's episode is brought to you by Wesper. Wesper was not involved in developing the content of this episode. We are learning more about the gut microbiome and how this impacts our health. There is some data about obesity and the microbiome in the literature, and now even more emerging data on sleep and the microbiome. Here to talk to us today is Dr. Andrew Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is a professor, vice chair, and director in the Division of Rhinology and Sinus Surgery in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at UC San Francisco. Dr. Goldberg is an awardee for both excellence in teaching and clinical excellence. He is a member of over 10 medical societies and academies and has published over 130 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how did you become interested in this field? I originally became interested because of my interest in sinusitis and sinus infection. About 20 or 25 years ago, no one was really interested in the etiology of chronic sinusitis. And a few people published papers that jolted the field into really taking a look at what the cause of chronic sinusitis might be. And in exploring that, it seemed that there was some chronic process that was involved. And fortunately, being here at UC San Francisco, there were a number of different researchers who were looking into airway inflammation and the microbiome. And I became interested in the microbiome through the upper and lower airway, mostly through sinusitis and asthma. Oh, so that's interesting. So, you know, when I when we talk about the microbiome, I kind of think about the gut microbiome, but what is included in the microbiome? So the microbiome is really uh, a collection or a community of microbes. It includes bacteria, includes viruses, fungi, archaea, and is really a community or an ecosystem that exists on all the surfaces of our body outside and inside. So the skin surfaces and the mucosal surfaces principally. And this is not just a random community of organisms. It's a, a somewhat coordinated and um, ecosystem that really exists in the same way that you can think of a forest or the ocean as being an ecosystem and very interdependent. The microbiome in the body is also interdependent where each microbe might have a role to play in the system and feed off another one in the system and be in some sort of uh, symbiosis with the body as well. So I'm hearing it's not just the gut then. So you're saying any mucosal surfaces, so um, airway, sinuses? Absolutely. Huh. Now, pe people, have, people have focused on the gut microbiome for a number of reasons. One is that the gut microbiome, and honestly, we, we often talk about the bacterial microbiome as being the microbiome because it's so dynamic and so influenced by things in the environment. And particularly in the gut, the microbiome influences um, everything from immunity to food absorption to cytokines that are produced that might cross the gut microbiome and enter the body and produce inflammation. So the gut microbiome is kind of at the center of the body's microbiome, but all the other areas also have their own specific communities. 
And I guess that makes sense, right? Because we already know that everything is is colonized. But I guess I was more thinking about um, the impact of the gut microbiome. And I guess I hadn't really considered <laughs> about the impact of, of the sinus microbiome. Yeah, the microbiome in all different parts of the body has is specific to that part. So the microbiome under your arm or in your nose, in your sinuses, your gut, esophagus, they're all distinct to that mm. particular area of the body. And some have incredibly important functions. And, and one you know, that I, I'll mention is the impact of the uh, initial inoculation of a baby as the baby passes through the birth canal sure. and is inoculated with the microbiome there, which really sets up the immune function, this immune priming of children in their first six to 12 months of life. And that microbiome is specific to the vaginal microflora and other microbiota in the sinuses, esophagus, gut. They're all specific to the area where they exist. So what is it that we get wrong about cultures and infection? That's a great question. So for years and years, we have taken a swab, we've swabbed an area, we played it on auger or some sort of specific medium, and we count colonies, and we look at what those colonies are and, and sort of determine, quote unquote, you know, what the infection is caused by. And I think that's, that was what we did for you know, almost a century or more, but really it's quite naive. The simple experiment where you swab an area, put it in saline and spin it down and look under a microscope will allow you to see that there are many, many different types of microbes that exist in any one part of the body. And the ones that grow out on a plate are really only a small representation, probably 0.1 to 1% of the different microbes that are available. We often think of an infection as uh, represented by the dominant microorganism, say a staph infection, a pseudomonas infection, a strep, etc. It's not necessarily a bad way to think of things, except it really is an incomplete way to think of things. There really is a community in which that particular microbe exists that influences that microbe's ability to come out of the, the group and cause trouble. Huh. So what kind of changes do we see with obstructive sleep apnea then? So obstructive sleep apnea and the microbiome are uh, very interactive. So we've tested the gut microflora specifically in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. And we've seen changes that are different from patients who don't have obstructive sleep apnea. And fortunately, we've been able to make some uh, animal models that allow us to mimic in some ways what happens in OSA, such as uh, sleep fragmentation or uh, intermittent hypoxia or intermittent hypoxia with hypercarbia, and try to see what happens to the gut in an animal model, mice and uh, rats have been used in particular, and to see the changes that occur. So we see this in humans, and we also see it in the animals in which we induce these changes. And so there, I'm hearing, if I'm hearing you right, there are different changes if you have sleep apnea with hypoxia versus sleep apnea with sleep fragmentation versus hypoxia and hypercarbia? Well, certainly in the animal model, uh, it's been shown that the um, microbiome changes that happen with fragmentation and with hypoxia are somewhat different, but it's, 
it's kind of hard to characterize exactly what the differences are and exactly how to interpret the differences. This, this gets into an area of um, computational microbiology, which is a very mm -hmm. complex field where we try to make sense of the hundreds or thousands of different organisms that we find when we do a, uh, an analysis of the microbiome. And so we use terms that are somewhat generalized, like dysbiosis, and they really mean that there are changes in the microbiome that seem to be um, unhealthy, but it's sometimes more difficult to characterize in a short sentence exactly what those changes may be. So do you think that the changes are the result of sleep apnea, or do you think it sort of it's this, it contributes to this sort of predisposition towards obstructive sleep apnea? So uh, that's a great question and a bit hard to answer. And so I'll answer just in the in form of the data that we do have, and that is that the changes that occur in the microbiome seem to happen as a result of sleep apnea, but it is absolutely possible that there are changes in the microbiome that might predispose somebody to sleep apnea. We certainly know that some of the changes in the gut microbiome in animal models are capable of changing um, uh, of changing some aspects of sleep. Uh, can make, uh, for instance, if you take the um, the fecal water from uh, a mouse that has been induced to have uh, um, sleep fragmentation, and you give it to another mouse, that mouse will become sleepy, and there will be some changes in the sleep pattern huh. of that of that second mouse. And so this is sort of some of that evidence that really it is microbiome changes in the gut that can influence some, at least some of the effects of sleep apnea. So, okay, so that's interesting. So you talked about sleepiness. Would that impact sleep patterns too then? Uh, yes, it seems to. So there seem to be changes in sleep pattern as well with mice um, and uh, changes in sleep duration as an example. So those mice have longer sleep duration and they, um, they tend to have um, what are called an increase in sleep bouts during dark huh. cycles. So for a mouse, of course, they're nocturnal. So their dark cycle is when they're supposed to be awake. But it turns out that if you uh, take some of this uh, fecal water from mice that have been induced to have sleep apnea and you give it to other mice, then they basically get tired. Huh. <laughs> so, okay, so I was... I guess where my brain went with this is that it maybe influences body weight and obesity, and then that maybe leads to sleep apnea. But yes. Mm -hmm. So how how is there that component as well, or is it more the sleepiness? Absolutely. So the interaction between the microbiome and sleep apnea is definitely bidirectional. And mm. so there are changes in the microbiome that are caused by sleep apnea that probably contribute to sleep apnea symptoms. And there are also changes in the uh, microflora in the gut that can predispose towards sleep apnea in various ways. So one of those ways is just what you mentioned, and that is that there's a predisposition towards obesity because of some of the microbiome changes that happen. And there are different ratios um, in the gut. It's sort of the... Um, um, the relationship between, uh, you know, bacteroides and firmicutes, which is what we usually think of, the bacteroides being the better, B for better uh, microbe, <laughs> and the firmicutes, for F for fat, if you, if I can use that term. Ooh, okay. Um, I know, I'm not supposed to, for, uh, but it, it is a good mnemonic. 
And so the more bacteroides you have, kind of the better, and the more firmicutes, the more predisposed you might be towards obesity. And so these changes in the microbiome that uh, kind of alter that ratio, predisposed towards obesity, and then can continue to propagate the sleep apnea. Huh. So you make it sound like it would be easy to then sort of fix and reverse. Well, that's a great point. And so um, a lot of the effects that um, uh, of these microbiome changes um, may be mitigated by probiotics. It's not really been experimented with very much huh. in uh, people to this point, although uh, there are studies underway. Um, but what we do see is that specifically in the animal model, there are changes in the microbiome and changes induced by the microbiome that are reversible or preventable with the administration of prebiotics or probiotics. And some of those are very important in terms of sleep apnea, specifically um, hypertension. So you can um, take a mouse and you can give it sleep apnea and feed it a high fat diet, and you can detect neuroinflammation and hypertension. And if you co-administer pre and probiotics in these uh, rats, then it prevents the neuroinflammation and prevents the hypertension. And this is even more evidence that the microbiome is actually influencing these things directly because you can mitigate these effects with probiotics. It's really a remarkable, uh, remarkable effect. So then I'm hearing you say it's not just the sleep apnea, but also these sleep apnea comorbid conditions like hypertension then. Absolutely. So hypertension is a clear example. Um, obesity that we said is a clear example. There seem to be changes in um, cardiac function that, and the inflammatory mediators that are present in the blood. And again, the administration of some probiotics have been able to be protective against myocardial dysfunction in uh, animals that have been induced to have sleep apnea. So uh, one in particular, lactobacillus GG, which is uh, a fairly common probiotic and one that some people actually give to children um, is one that seems to be protective against this myocardial dysfunction. So other areas that are really important in sleep apnea, hypertension, um, heart issues, obesity, are uh, potentially, um, the, uh, we could mitigate them potentially by the use of some of these probiotics. So what if, so if you have somebody with sleep apnea and you treat the sleep apnea, does that change the microbiome? So again, in animal models, it seems that um, it does change the microbiome under certain conditions. But one of these things that um, has been found and is kind of um, still unknown exactly why it happens this way is that if you produce sleep fragmentation in an animal and then remove the sleep fragmentation, their gut microbiome seems to go back to where it was before. But if you use the intermittent hypoxia model, then there are changes in the gut microbiome that don't reverse when you remove the intermittent hypoxia. It introduces another concept that's very important when you we talk about the microbiome. This is something called colonization resistance. So a microbiome that you have anywhere in your body, in your gut, in your sinuses, lungs, etc., it can't be very changeable. So you can't, um, it, it can't be perturbed easily by changes in the environment. If that were the case, then the microbiome would be changing in a way that was unhealthy potentially. And so the microbiome, although it does change based on external influences, 
the microbiome also is somewhat stable. And so it can return to uh, a healthy state in general from a, a relatively unhealthy state. An example might be a cold or upper respiratory infection. Mm. So you get a cold, hopefully it lasts for three to five days. You have changes in your microbiome related to that cold, and then they hopefully go back to normal or go back to a healthy state. But you can imagine how, say, in sinus infection, which is an area that I study, that you could have a cold or an upper respiratory infection, get a microbiome change, and then that microbiome becomes unhealthy and stable. Ah. And you can't change it back. And it's very difficult to have that microbiome revert to a healthy state again. And um, this is something, of course, we're working on and trying to, um, trying to um, alter with treatments. But it's very difficult to do. That is colonization resistance. The resistance of a healthy microbiome to be perturbed or the resistance of an unhealthy microbiome to be perturbed. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the microbiome and sleep. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. With Wesper, sleep management is so easy, you could do it well in your sleep. Wesper delivers a powerful sleep management platform built to address sleep conditions from testing through ongoing care. From home sleep apnea testing and sleep disorder testing to remote patient monitoring, patient titration, outcome management, and much more. It's sleep management made easy. Learn more at wesper.co. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Goldberg about the microbiome and how it relates to sleep. So you mentioned that you then have this sort of new unhealthy microbiome. Can you instill probiotics? I mean, can you flush the sinuses? Can you recolonize it with sort of the ideal probiotics or the ideal microbes? So that's a, that's a great question, and it is definitely something that um, we and others are working on. But let me use an example that I think will be easily recognizable to the audience. So C. diff, Clostridia difficile infection, is a really a great model, at least to get started in thinking about how the microbiome works. So we know we have a gut microbiome, it's usually healthy, and somebody can be chugging along and doing great. And then they have antibiotics administered cephalosporins, clindamycin, whatever it is, and then you have a change in the microbiome in the gut. Now, in the vast majority of people, this will revert back to a healthy microbiome once you stop the antibiotics. But there is clearly a subset of people in whom C. diff will overgrow, so you've changed the gut microbiome, and somehow the community that exists is conducive to the overgrowth of Clostridia difficile infection, and you have this chronic condition of C. diff that might not revert. And so here we have a situation where there's an unhealthy microbiome, there's colonization resistance, and it just propagates itself. So we have done various things to try to mitigate that in the past, usually, ironically, the administration of other antibiotics. And so we try to kind of clear out the infection, if you will, or the C. diff, and hope, cross our fingers, that it will recolonize with a healthy microbiome. Well, this happens in about 75% of people, but in about 25%, it doesn't work. And in that 25%, if you try it again, they have a very high incidence of having it go right back 
to C. diff in an unhealthy situation. Hmm. And so one therapeutic option that has been utilized is fecal microbial transfer or fecal bacteriotherapy. And so what we do in these patients with an unhealthy gut microbiome is we administer some antibiotics and then administer a healthy gut microbiome usually from what we call a bed or table partner, so somebody in the household <laughs> um, who might have a similar microbiome. And we take some fecal material, and we usually, through an NG tube, um, we instill it back in the patient's gut, and there is an incredibly high cure rate for patients with chronic C. diff infection, even in the most recalcitrant patients. And this has been published uh, 10 years ago. There was a really nice study published in the New England Journal of Medicine on the use of uh, donor feces for recurrent C. diff. And the success rate was incredibly high. It's a great prototype example of what the microbiome can do and how the microbiome can be perturbed. It's not necessarily exactly what happens in every situation, but it's a good model to kind of get you started on what the gut microbiome is all about. I remember that. They used to freeze feces and put it in those little um, gel cap things and then yep. have people swallow them. That is, yeah. So what is the unified airway theory? What does that mean? So the unified airway theory is something I deal with um, in my field very much. And it's a theory where um, the upper airway and the lower airway, the nose, the sinuses, the pharynx, the lungs are connected together, and they kind of act in concert. Now, certainly, the result of changes in the airway aren't the same in the nose and sinuses as they are in the lungs. Obviously, in the lungs, we get airway inflammation, we have reactive airway disease, patients wheeze, develop asthma, etc. In the upper airway, of course, patients have inflammation that usually will create a sinus infection, potentially nasal polyps, and other conditions such as that. And so what we find is that changes in the upper airway influence the lower airway. So we all know if somebody gets a URI that um, they might be predisposed towards a, uh, an asthma exacerbation or wheezing, even in somebody who doesn't have um, asthma to begin with. And so the airway in the, uh, in the nose and sinuses influences what happens in the lower airway and the lungs. And so this is an example of the unified airway theory where the upper and lower airway are tied together in various ways. So talk to me about asthma in the microbiome. So uh, there are also a number of studies, and some of those are ones that came from our institution, that have uh, sampled the microbiome in patients with asthma and have found that the microbiome is what we call dysbiotic. So it's not the same as a patient who doesn't have asthma. And we've also found this in chronic sinusitis where there's a dysbiosis. And I can give some details on that where um, the microbiome in a chronic sinus infection um, is less diverse than a microbiome in a healthy patient. Um, it has a smaller number of microbes in it. In other words, small different, a smaller number of different species of microbes present. And there's a lot more unevenness. So you'll have some that are um, overrepresented and some that are underrepresented. And overall, this is a loss of diversity in the sinuses. And we see that also in the lungs, in the airway. What we also see is that when we induce sinusitis in an animal model, we get dysbiosis in the lungs. 
And huh. so the, this is even more proof, experimental proof, of that unified airway theory where we induce inflammation in one area and it propagates to other areas. So, okay, so both bidirectional then. I was thinking it makes sense with gravity, right, from upstairs to downstairs. But if you nebulize a probiotic, would that improve the upper airway? Um, that's a great question. So we have done this experimentally where we have um, co-administered um, uh, an antibiotic and subsequently after perturbing the microbiome in this way, uh, a pathogenic organism and have found that we can induce sinusitis and, and lower airway inflammation. When we do the same experiment, first perturbing with an antibiotic, then instilling a pathogenic bacteria and instilling a probiotic bacteria that we can mitigate some of the effects. In some, we actually um, eliminated sinusitis, and in some, we huh. just mitigated the sinusitis and also mitigated some of the effects on the lower airway. So in that situation, co-administration of a probiotic was actually helpful in reducing airway inflammation and shortening the duration of any effect of that pathogenic bacteria. Now, unfortunately, this hasn't fully translated into a therapeutic option mm. in humans, but there certainly is a lot of work underway in order to try to Im uh, improve and understand that situation. So you had talked before about um, when we were chatting earlier about the different types of inflammation, and you mentioned that some of this is type 2 inflammation. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So type 2 inflammation is inflammation in the upper and lower airway that specifically is related to certain um, cytokines. So we usually think of IL-4, IL-5, IL-13 as being part of that. And of course, we know that there are uh, multiple interventions, uh, biologic therapies, that block some of these cytokines and that can improve sinusitis and asthma. And so this type 2 inflammation is one that we see in a high percentage of patients who have chronic sinusitis and nasal polyps and in a high percentage of patients who have chronic and especially difficult to control asthma. Mm. And so these are the patients who are getting um, some of these um, uh, biologic therapies, some of these new uh, antibodies towards, um, say, the IL-4A receptor or for uh, IL-5 that are so prevalent today. So the eosinophilic one. Absolutely. This is okay. what we're talking about. Okay. So this is, I mean, it's fascinating. How, how should we be talking to our patients about this? And I, I think where I'm going with this is now I have visions of people popping open their lactobacillus and throwing it in a neti pot and going to town. <laughs> so how should we be thinking about this? How should we be talking to our patients about this? Well, it's probably a bit premature to uh, to go around telling patients that that's the right thing to do, although I would uh, certainly um, love to have some sort of therapeutic intervention that allowed us to um, uh, to improve patients' sinusitis and asthma and their gut microbiome. There certainly are a lot of commercially available uh, probiotics that can be used. You can buy them in any uh, in any store, supermarket, and and use them potentially. And there are some positive effects, particularly with um, antibiotics that we give to patients. But 
it's a little premature to use them for a patient with sleep apnea, a patient with obesity, or even a patient with asthma and sinusitis and say, this is really going to change the course of your illness. Mm. I wish it weren't so, but uh, <laughs> at this point, it's kind of where we are. No, it's fascinating. So do you take a pro- probiotic? I'm guessing yes. Um, I actually don't. You don't. I, take a pro- I don't take a probiotic. Uh, even when I'm ill, I have. N- I don't typically take a probiotic. But if I had a some GI distress for some reason, I definitely would consider taking a probiotic. And you know, you can. Um, you want to. I can say a word or two about different probiotics that you might yeah. use. So, in general, you want to take a probiotic that includes either Lactobacillus, a Bifidobacterium. Uh, um, some certain bacilli, and you want to have ones that obviously um, have a a billion or more colony-forming units. So these have to be live, obviously, live bacteria, so that they have some influence on uh, on the target system. And um, you want to make sure that you're using ones that are properly cared for. If they need to be refrigerated, you should refrigerate them, and um, you want to do everything you can to keep the, uh, the probiotic healthy, if you will. I read something about how the probiotics that are commercially available are not necessarily the sort of quote unquote best ones for us, but they're the most shelf stable. Yeah, so there's always a compromise in, <laughs> uh, in sort of what's available. It, it rem- honestly, it reminds me a little bit about uh, what we talked about before with uh, the microbes that we can culture. And those are the mm. ones we treat. You know, we treat what we can see. Well, we have to deliver the things that we can deliver in the best um, in the best method, and sometimes it really requires them to be, um, you know, as you said, uh, stable on the shelf and um, able to be tolerated by the patient. This is a whole topic is fascinating. Do you have any final thoughts? I think we're really at the very early stages in understanding the microbiome and the way the microbiome influences health. There are ways that the microbiome influences our bodies that we don't understand and that we're only beginning to understand. The inflammation that we see in the gut that occurs with dysbiosis has broad effects on the body. It can induce neuroinflammation. It's been implicated in multiple different um, neurological and psychiatric diseases that, uh, that are treated. It's implicated in heart disease. The uh, periodontitis has been associated with heart disease for many years, and now we're beginning to understand how the microbiome in the mouth can influence heart disease. So we're really at the tip of the iceberg in understanding not only what effects the microbiome have in health and disease, but also how to characterize and hopefully how to also mitigate some of the effects of a dysbiotic process. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and providing such helpful information on the microbiome and sleep. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.